0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at org. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Father, as we contemplate this warning from our Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes and allow us to see the meaning of these words, to take them seriously and to learn from them. Help us, Lord, to profit from the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may remember that last Sunday I... Made a literary reference. I referred to Dickens' novel, Bleak House. And in doing that, I'd like to think I earned the right to make a movie reference now. We already did books, high brow. Now we're going to go a little lower brow and think about the movies. In fact, two movies, but there's a purpose for this because I think the two stories in the two films, uh, exemplify distinct and contrasting attitudes towards sacrifice. One of the movies is called 127 Hours. In this movie, a man gets his arm trapped and he realizes that in order to survive, he's going to have to, bear with me, uh, break the bones in his own arm and use his knife to amputate his own limb. He makes a great sacrifice in order to survive. He gives up something that he values for the greater good that's 127 hours the second movie is called dances with wolves at the beginning of dances with wolves a man is shot in the leg and the surgeons begin to amputate but he resists that sacrifice and he decides it would be better to give up on life instead he makes a heroic suicidal gesture that rallies the troops and gets him a better doctor so that he doesn't have to have his leg amputated and he doesn't lose his life. Now, I've seen Dances with Wolves many times, and I've never seen 127 Hours, and I never will, because I'm highly suggestible, and you just have to describe your symptoms to me, and I start feeling them, and the last thing in the world I want to do is put myself In the place of a man who has to do what that guy has to do but in addition to that i think there's something in my character and perhaps in yours too that actually prefers the vision of sacrifice in dances with wolves anyway as long as you're willing to lose everything you won't lose anything in fact you'll gain everything as long as you're willing to make the gesture, as long as you're willing to to give it all up, then you will receive everything. That appeals to me and my squeamishness. I'm the man who, when he stabbed himself in the hand and his wife said, we're going to have to take you to the emergency room and get stitches, I replied, you know, I've had a good run. Just let me bleed out. It's enough. I'd rather give up everything than have to endure A little bit of hardship. And romantically, I tell myself that that willingness, that willingness to give up, is actually the thing that God blesses so that you don't have to sacrifice at all. Right? That's grace, we tell ourselves. That's how it works. Jesus sacrificed so that I don't have to. But when you listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, and the way that He talks, the kind of sacrifice that He's describing sounds a lot more like 127 hours than it does like dances with wolves. Jesus isn't saying, if you're willing to give up everything, I won't make you give up anything. Jesus is saying there are some things you should give up for the greater good. There are some sacrifices that you should make. And one of those sacrifices has to do with your sin. Jesus doesn't assure us that if we just ignore our sin, if we do nothing about it, if we just give up on sanctification, then grace will swoop in and deliver you from the need to sacrifice anything. Instead, Jesus is saying it would be better to lose anything now in order to avoid losing everything in the life to come. The thing that you tell yourself Jesus would never expect you to give up, that He would never expect you to do without, that He would never expect you to be able to overcome, Jesus actually says, you're better off without it. You're better off without it. If we think about this call to sacrifice, this call to take our sins seriously and to mortify our sin, I want to start uh, with some technical stuff, with some theological stuff. I want to talk about the necessity of temptation and the responsibility of those who bring it, which are two ideas that seem to be in conflict. that that temptation is necessary, that it serves a purpose, and yet the one through whom temptation comes is actually responsible for that sin. Jesus says it in our text, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So in those words, Jesus laments temptation. He warns those through whom temptation comes. collectively he warns the world the the culture around us woe to this world for drawing us into sin but also the individual woe to the one who draws us into sin the one who tempts that warning is really just Jesus building on what he said in the text that we looked at last week earlier said, you'd be better off drowning at the bottom of the sea than leading one of God's little ones to sin. And so he's reinforcing that warning, emphasizing the seriousness of it. But he's also saying that temptations are necessary. In other words, they serve a purpose in God's plan. So think about that. What purpose does temptation serve? Well, if you look in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of insight into this when he's talking about uh, divisions within the church. We know divisions in the church are bad. We know that we should be of one mind. But when he addresses the divisions in Corinth, Paul says, "...for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized." He's not saying, I heard that you guys are divisive, and you know what? It's a good thing. Because the divisiveness is actually positive because it leads to a good result. If not for your divisiveness, it would be hard to see who are the faithful believers and who are not. So thanks for being divisive. No. The factions serve a purpose. They vindicate the faithfulness of God's people, and that faithfulness... Under temptation glorifies God. So in that sense, temptations are necessary. But those who form factions are not innocent. Right? They're not without sin. They are here warned. Calvin describes the necessity of temptations. He says they're necessary in order to exercise their faith, the faith of those who believe, the little ones, and to separate unbelievers as the refuse and chaff from the pure wheat, essentially paraphrasing Paul's rationale. But if temptation serves God's purpose, how can the tempter be at fault? That's the question. How can you be punished for something that ultimately leads to good? Paul entertains this question hypothetically, In the book of Romans, how can He still find fault if no one resists His will? If what we've done was willed by God, how can He hold us responsible for it? Yet Jesus here insists that God's ultimate use of that evil does not remove the guilt. He says it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You might think, of the way that the Bible treats Judas, right? The sacrifice at the cross which Judas facilitates according to Peter in Acts 2 happens according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So that you might, in hindsight, have said if not for the betrayal of Judas, the cross might never have happened. Thank you, Judas, for doing this great work. That's not the way the New Testament sees Judas's betrayal. Somehow, even though what he did worked into the plan of God, he's held accountable for it. He's guilty of that sin. If we take that logic and we think about it, we see that in Scripture there is no contradiction between God's sovereignty and and human responsibility. On the one hand, temptations are necessary. They serve the purpose of furthering God's glory. Yet, on the other, those who tempt others and those who yield to temptation are responsible. They are guilty for their sin. For all our efforts to say it's got to be one way or the other, like either it's God or it's us, either He's responsible or we're responsible. The reality is Scripture presents it not as an either-or, but a both-and. God's ways may be mysterious. They may be incomprehensible to us. But when He tells us something is so, it's so. It works that way. And this is the way God says it works. Now, why am I telling you this? Because what's true for sin is true for obedience as well. If you understand that, when it comes to sin... It gives you a way of understanding the call to obedience, too. Just as God's sovereignty doesn't cancel out responsibility for sin, God's grace doesn't cancel out the call to obedience. Grace is not a get-out-of-obedience card, in other words. Grace doesn't mean that we can persist in sin. Grace frees us from bondage to sin so that we can be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. This is Calvin again. He's describing uh, Jesus' warning and, and the purpose of that warning. He says, Now, since Christ intended to strike his disciples with terror on account of offenses and thus to arouse them to exertion, woe to our indifference if each of us does not earnestly apply himself to overcome those offenses. That's Calvin. So if you thought that the gospel of grace, as understood by Calvinists, was that because of grace, obedience isn't a thing anymore. It doesn't matter how we live because of grace. The man himself is telling you that's not the way it works. Not at all. Jesus is putting terror into those of us who will not obey Terror into those of us who will not turn from our sin. It's a common criticism of grace that it makes us slack in terms of obedience, that we become indifferent to sin because that sin is forgiven. In fact, I was watching an apologetics video from an Eastern Orthodox priest. Uh, He was asked the question whether or not he had certainty of his own salvation. And he replied, of course not. Of course I don't have certainty of my salvation. God is working. He is saving me. He will save me. But of course I can't be certain because I also must obey. I must do the things that Jesus calls me to do. If it were as simple as just making a decision once and then being certain of my salvation, then I could do that and then afterwards live however I want. I wouldn't have to listen to what Jesus says. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter anymore. So it can't possibly work that way. I have to obey in order to be saved. Now the argument there is that salvation must depend essentially on sanctification. There would be no motivation to mortify sin. If you don't have to do it in order to be saved, why would you do it? You wouldn't. You would just sin so that grace may abound as the apostle paul puts it and so we tell ourselves that grace starts the process but we have to obey in order to keep that process going we've got to work with god in order to try to make sure that this thing is actually going to end the way that it begins but that man in explaining the gospel gets it wrong But I think he gets it wrong for the right reason. Like he's worried that salvation by grace alone means that obedience doesn't matter, that it's a license to sin. And that's a good concern to have because when the Apostle Paul explains the gospel, that's exactly the concern people have that he has to address. If you're explaining the gospel, by the way, and people don't have this concern, you're not explaining it correctly. Like if you're explaining the Gospel as essentially us working with God on on the personal project of obedience so that hopefully we might please Him enough in order to be with Him in eternity, no one will ever say, I'm worried that you're overemphasizing grace. I'm worried that that you're not emphasizing the need for, for human work enough. In other words, no one will ever be worried about your Gospel the way they worried about Paul's. So we want to understand the Gospel in a way that makes... Religious people that makes moralists uncomfortable. But then we also want to realize that the thing they're uncomfortable about isn't actually true. That we're not turning our back on obedience. That God has called us to obedience. There's no conflict between grace and obedience. Once you understand that obedience follows grace from a spirit of gratitude. And that even that obedience is still the spirit working in us. In other words, we don't obey in order to please him so that we might become his children. We obey him out of gratitude that he has raised us up and adopted us as his. Again, it's not either or, it's both and. But when we think about obedience, we mainly think of doing what is right and when Jesus talks about obedience in this passage, he's emphasizing another aspect of obedience, which is self-sacrifice. Right? Obedience requires a determination to turn from sin, to starve your sin of the oxygen. There's no salvation without sanctification. And that means there's no salvation that doesn't include self-discipline, self-sacrifice, The discipline and the sacrifice don't earn God's approval, but they do show that we are His and that He has at work in us. Like you're responsible for your sin, even when God uses it for good, and you're still called to obedience, even if it's Christ's obedience, not yours, that saves you. The words that Jesus speaks here, the difficult ones, the tough ones, the the self-severing stuff that he talks about. This is not the first time that Jesus has said something like this. Right In verses 8 and 9 here, Jesus is actually repeating himself. He's going back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, where he said basically the same thing. If you look at Matthew 5, you'll see Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So same idea here, and it's expressed in essentially the same words. But Jesus is speaking to a slightly different context here. And seeing this warning here in chapter 18 does give us... Uh, a different sense of what he means in chapter five, the context was lust, and so these were all extreme remedies to the sin of lust, and the focus there, understandably, is internal, right on the sacrifices that you might make in order to avoid being destroyed by your sin, right That it should be uh, important to sanctify yourself, let's say, for your own good. But in chapter 18, the context is not just individual, it's communal. Jesus is speaking to us not just of, of our own situation before Him, how to live as an individual before the face of God. He's speaking to us as a community, as a church, and telling us how to live with one another, how to treat one another, how to relate to one another. And so this warning lands a little bit differently in that context. And it reveals a complexity about sin. Sin's not just corrupting and condemning us. But sin uses us to corrupt and condemn others too. Our lust, our pride draws others in. It uses others for its own ends. And the others it targets tend to be the weak, the poor, the humble. So the warning is to those who would use the church for these ends. Those who would prey on God's little children, on believers. Those who would exploit them. A community, a church that tolerates sin is refusing to make the sacrifice that Jesus calls us to make. And the cost of that refusal is not just individual It's a cost to the community as a whole. When Jesus warns about the millstone around your neck bringing you down to the bottom of the sea, Calvin calls that Jesus' threatening dreadful punishment if any man in his pride shall throw down those who are oppressed with poverty or who in heart are already humbled. In other words, those who are tempted to treat their brothers with disdain. People like that, Jesus says... They'd be better off uh, being crippled, being lame, or being blind in order to mortify their sin and to avoid giving temptation. Because when you make those sacrifices, you're not only protecting yourself, you're also protecting the vulnerable. You're protecting those who disproportionately are the ones who fall prey to our sin when it is not mortified. As a church, we have a responsibility to take our sins seriously, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of one another. You should mortify your sin, not just for you, but for everyone around you. Because it affects everyone around you, regardless of what you tell yourself. Jesus told us last week that we must humble ourselves like children. But part of humbling yourself is making sacrifices for the sake of others. Of seeing others as worthy of making such sacrifices for. That's not always easy for us to see. Like We are formed by a culture that is ruthlessly individualistic. Dog-eat-dog. Every man for himself. And that's also highly consumeristic where we're accustomed to getting what we want when we want it. The idea of disciplining yourself for your own good is increasingly an alien thought. Something we all struggle with. But disciplining yourself for the sake of others seems like an unthinkable restriction on my freedom. Why would I ever sacrifice anything for the sake of others? But when you're insisting on the freedom to destroy yourself, Are you insisting on the freedom to destroy others? Well, that's not freedom at all. Not as God understands it. That's bondage to sin. It is bondage to sin that makes you think that that exploitation, that depredation would be better than the sacrifice that God calls us to. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, when he gives us that beautiful, glorious passage about the humility of Jesus Christ, he's giving us Christ's example to explain how he's telling us to treat one another. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What would that mean? What would that look like practically speaking? Well, he tells us. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Looking to the interests of others means, among other things, not leading them into sin. Not tearing them down when you've been called to build them up. Not thinking that it's okay if they get destroyed. If they get torn down as long as I am fine. Counting others more significant than Ourselves means, among other things, making sacrifices for their sake. It means suppressing your own sin so that others can flourish and not be affected by it. So, just to review, every believer, every little one, will be tested so that their faithfulness can be proven and can glorify God. Yet, Jesus says, Woe to the ones who test. Those little ones. They're still responsible for their sin. So don't be the person who, like Judas, works evil that God uses for good, because you will still be held accountable for that evil, for that sin. So generally speaking, we all need to take sin more seriously than we do. But specifically, in the context of this chapter, we need to take sin against one another more seriously than we do. We need to be not so quick to excuse it. We must focus on building one another up, not tearing one another down. Don't tempt one another. Don't exploit one another. Don't abuse one another. Instead, love one another. And realize that love, as Jesus loves, doesn't tolerate sin. Because the toleration of sin is destructive. Love mortifies sin to make room for life. To make room for flourishing. Now I realize there's a lot of criticism in the world about abuse in the church. And it's easy when everyone is turning their guns on the church to try to make arguments against it, to become defensive, right? We can argue over what constitutes abuse. We can be defensive about who's guilty and who's not for abuse. But when you get defensive you can miss the clear direction of what Jesus is pointing towards here. The reason that there's abuse is because many of us would rather have hell tomorrow than lose a hand today. The reason there's abuse in the church is that there are plenty of people in the church who aren't concerned about what happens in the future, but are just looking to enjoy life now because we're using the church of Jesus Christ to pursue prideful ambition, and we're doing it at the expense of other people. And this isn't something to get defensive about. This is something to be appalled by because this is a sacrilegious abuse of the church of Jesus Christ where we are called to love one another, to put one another first in all things. This is contrary to the teaching and to the example of our Lord Jesus. We should never make excuses for it. This may seem hard and challenging, may seem like, like uh, cracking the whip a little bit, but it really isn't, not at all. You consider how easy it is to learn to take sin seriously? It's not a challenge, it's not a struggle. If you want to know how to take sin seriously, it's as simple as just looking to Jesus. Our compassionate Savior who teaches us in His very being and His words and His deeds how to take sin seriously and how taking it seriously might reorient everything that you do. If you want to be like Jesus, if you want to follow Him, then you have to follow Him on this and take sin seriously. Jesus sacrificed in this life in order to gain glory in the next He humbled Himself for the sake of the weak and the lowly, for your sake, even though He had every reason to be proud. He didn't give up a hand. He didn't give up a leg. He didn't give up an eye to sin. He gave up His whole body. He gave up His life. He gave up His position and prestige. He sacrificed to an unimaginable degree for the sake of your sin. If you want to know how to treat one another, just look at how he's treated you. The example of Jesus answers that question. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsuefalls.org.